Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIconf.com. In this episode of the Days Show, I sat down with Aureli Pauls of Mind Your Privacy. She is one of my go-to resources when it comes to data privacy and data ethics. This particular conversation took place at Strata Data London a couple of days before the EU General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, took effect. I wanted her perspective on this landmark regulation as well as her take on broader trends in data privacy and the growing interest in ethics among data professionals. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So we're here at Strata Data London 2018 with Aureli Pauls, and she just finished giving a three-hour tutorial on GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, as well as e-privacy. And uh, we're here on a Tuesday, and GDPR is supposed to come online on Friday. So welcome to the data show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So yes, Friday, uh, the GDPR comes into force, 25th of May. We've had two years to get uh, familiar with the text and get ready for it. So the interesting thing is uh, 25th of May is a Friday, so I don't expect much to happen on Saturday the 26th. Let's see the week after. So I imagine you've been going around uh, giving talks and uh, engaging with uh, uh, communities all over Europe. What is your sense of the level of preparation? I think it really depends who you talk to. There's a big difference between uh, European actors and obviously outside of Europe, certainly the United States. Um, I remember having discussions two years ago in the U.S., uh, where people looked at me and said, well, yeah, well, European legislation, who cares? And these actors have appointed data protection officers about a week or 10 days ago. So it's interesting to see how how um, the conversation has changed since the beginning of this year, 2018, and how some form of hysteria has been building up over the last couple of weeks as well. And uh, what is there a, a set of steps I imagine at this point, there's a checklist for companies, right? So in order to assess their level of readiness. Yeah, so so there's the, the main idea behind the GDPR is that you should be accountable for your data processing operations. Um, and so, well, the, the first thing is to start mapping what you actually have, what you're sitting on in terms of personal data, um, knowing also that um, definition of personal data has been broadened under the GDPR. Is often conflated with PII, personally identifiable information in the US, but it's not the same thing. It's, it's broader because it's not just one variable. It can be a set of variables. And it also includes things like IP addresses, cookies, unique identifiers. And so these discussions, once you have mapped your data, start thinking about, okay, where might my liability be? Am I touching on personal data? Yes or no? And how am I going to make sure that um, I do that in an accountable way. And I also abide by 
the rules within the GDPR. So there's there are a lot of things in there. Um, there's obligations related to um, data breach notifications, for example, where we kind of align with the United States as well, because they have passed legislation around it as well. But also certainly that's more European, this idea of data subjects' rights, right to access, right to deletion, right to rectification, portability, which are causing some problems within legacy systems as that level of granularity doesn't really exist. So a lot of questions are arising today in this last phase of preparation related to, well, how am I going to make sure that I can abide by these rights and make sure I do the right thing under, under the legislation? It's interesting to see certain systems have been rewritten, certain systems have been completely deleted, types of data and things like that, um, and also understanding default settings, for example, to make sure that we move from well, let's collect everything towards, well, let's collect what we need for the data processing operations. So it's a different mindset. I stuck my head in a tutorial yesterday and uh, going to your point about legacy systems, you know, it was interesting to hear. So there's an interesting project that I think listeners of this podcast have heard me talk about, the Apache Pulsar, which is a next generation messaging system. But it turns out they had features that map nicely into GDPR, like the ability to delete individual records, index records, and make it easy, and, and, and things like that. And so I wonder, moving forward, the future data systems will be built from the ground up with a lot of these things in mind. Yeah, I think, you know, the opportunities of data and the, the, the possibility of granularity is obviously there. This is why we have conferences like these as well. And so this, this newfound power can be translated actually to be compliant and to think in other ways about how you use the data. I think the big mindset change is to say this is not just about um, the company or the corporation using the data, but it's about trying to find the right balance between how I use the data as a company and what consumers, customers, citizens would expect from me while I use that data. So there are interesting new evolutions that are totally possible today that were not possible in the 1990s that more recent uh, data setups have integrated for a couple of years now it's it's indeed those legacy systems um, i had a client last year who had microfilms so uh, data deletion requests within microfilms is like they don't even have the the the, the appliance to read it anymore um, so what do you do with that? What kind of decisions do you make knowing that in certain sectors you have to keep the data for five or seven years and there were still within those microfilms actually um, data related to these kinds of contracts? So we decided to secure it and decided that in the next five years we would destroy them one way or another. So it's it's never going to be perfect and it's not going to be compliant 100%. I think it's not it's not even possible because the GDPR is a legislation, it's not a technical requirement. So we'll have to see a bit how this is going to pan out, what best practices are. Can we work together on standards? That would be good um, to, to move forward in terms of future uses of the data. Um, and this is also how, how I think people should see the GDPR. It's not an endpoint. Compliance of GDPR is not an endpoint. It's a starting 
point for a journey where a balance between the companies and society and uses of data needs to be redefined. Um, because when I look at my children, I look at how they use technology, I look at how smart my house might become or my car or my fridge, I know that in the long run, this idea of giving consent to my fridge to share data is not totally viable. So what are we going to build for the next generations? It's not totally clear. There are some ideas out there because the European institutions are talking about ethics, artificial intelligence, robotics, things like that. But in the meantime, it would be good to make sure that the actors involved in the data ecosystem are accountable for what they do and that we have these processes in place to say, well, if you do this, can you explain to me why this happened? And can we maybe rectify the data or delete the data or things like that? Yeah, so you've got... Uh... A group of stakeholders, you've got the regulators who are doing, uh, being very proactive. You have certain companies who are much more proactive. So, for example, Apple with differential privacy and, and things like that. But now the consumers, I think, with recent headlines around Facebook and Equifax are a lot more informed and hopefully they remember some of these incidents. And I'm actually even beginning to hear things that uh, go maybe even beyond GDPR, like uh, users may want uh, some say over the length of uh, data retention. Like how long are you going to keep my data for? And even forget about using my data to model, but even uh, uh, using my data as part of some aggregate summary, right? So before maybe I want to consent before, before I be part of these. And then the final stakeholder is the uh, data community gathered in this conference, at least in the U.S., there are now 180 ethics classes in computer science departments across 80 universities. So at least maybe the next generation, there might be some much more aware and informed computer scientists. So it seems like everyone is kind of moving in different speeds towards kind of uh, the same direction. Yeah, I, I've been teaching privacy and ethics in Madrid at the um, Instituto de Empresa. Um, they're one of the top business schools in the world. And they're a big data and analytics um, master um, because basically I asked. Uh, I really insisted. Um, and they were, they were okay with it. And I see the evolution as well. Uh, five years ago, they looked at me like, what is she talking about? Uh, three years ago, um, some of the, the people in the room started to understand. I, I must admit it was more the, the female crowd than right. the guys. Um, and last year it was like, it's good, it's fine, we get it, we understand our obligations one way or another. Um, I'm starting the classes for this year on the 25th, uh, so Friday as well when GDPR kicks in. So that's that's interesting. I'm curious to see what, what how those students are going to react to all these news and Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg in front of the European Parliament today, tonight, later today. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see. Having said that, ethics is something I've heard initially from American uh, people I've talked to. And it's kind of, I'm happy about it, but it kind of feels a bit mushy, a bit vague. What is ethics? And ethics are based on values and whose values and how do you translate so in work that I've, I've done within the Ethics Advisory Group of the EDPS for the last two years, we published a white paper called Towards a Digital Ethics, which is now open for comments. 
until at the end of the year, there's going to be a conference of the privacy commissioners on a global level that are also going to discuss ethics. And um, basically, I learned two things uh, over that, that period of two years discussing with philosophers and legal scholars and things like that is the first thing is that ethics influences the building of the legislation. It influences the interpretation of the legislation. It influences what comes after the legislation. So I wouldn't want ethics to become some kind of um, uh, an alternative for compliance. Everything starts with compliance. And um, the GDPR is obviously a, a piece of European legislation, but it doesn't sit within the silo of European markets. It has openings towards global uh, data flows. And this is what Europe wants, but a certain level of respect that is enshrined within the Charter of Fundamental Rights for the data subjects and the citizens. So that was one, one part that I clearly understood is ethics is a bit everywhere and it's difficult to define. And we need, certainly in light of artificial intelligence, but also robots and talking about robot rights and, you know, how, how is ethics going to evolve or influence these discussions at some point? Um, the other point that I learned, and I, I was pretty surprised and it took me a while to, to actually understand it, is um, I've always thought about technology and certainly um, data within uh, these pieces of technology as bits of legal. You know, we kind of plug things together. I was just listening to Claudera talk about security, where it's like Hive and different horrible names that I never remember. And so for me, technology was, was always these pieces of Lego. I think there's a more powerful, there are more powerful pieces of Lego, and that's the law. Because concepts like consent, like personal data, were created out of nothing. They come out of philosophical discussions, and obviously these are the challenges moving forward, is to say, okay, consent is a concept we created back in the 1980s, it's not something new, but moving forward, as we don't have screens to show our consent or our buttons to click, how would that work moving forward? Um, same thing as personal data. What are the limits of personal data? And at some point, you can consider any kind of data to be personal data or have influences on the individuals. So is that that kind of frontier going to disappear in the long run? Yes or no? We will have to see together with the philosophers, the ethicists as well, um, people responsible for, for modelization of the economy also to see what we want as a society moving forward and how the limits and the uses of data or this idea of accountability is going to be attributed to the different actors within the ecosystem. It's interesting to see how things evolve. I think we've been through this idea of let's collect it, the technology is great, uh, let's build new tools and things like that. This is kind of hopefully stabilizing. You're better at that than I am, so you can tell me. But now it's time to kind of rebalance everything and to say, okay, we've, we've been collecting this all, processing, pushing the limits, solving for problems. Now let's reintegrate this idea of citizenship within it and make sure that it's basically data for good, which is also something that's been discussed at, at these conferences before. Yeah, I would say uh, if you spoke with me two years ago or even six months, a year ago, I was a bit kind of frustrated with the whole ethics or even forget about ethics that's maybe too big but around fairness and bias and because it seemed to me that the discussion the talks are always here's a bunch of 
horrible stories of when things went wrong, but there was never any practical advice to people. But now I think uh, people are starting to uh, realize that you can't stop at that level of discussion. You have to give uh, people some basic tools. Okay, so we know we accept that this can happen and th this is bad, but what are some uh, steps we can take to minimize our risks? And, you know, as you alluded to, ethics is not capturable in a checklist, but uh, at least a checklist gives you some first steps beyond just listening to scary stories. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so see it from, from a positive side. I think in between that. Or help me, help me do something. Yes, yes. What should I do, actually? Um, I think over the last couple of years, what I've realized is, for example, being an outlier uh, as an individual in different ways and manners can have consequences on your life, on decisions being made. And so we need to start to be wary about how we are going to manage this idea of consequences on decisions made by data and imposed on to people's lives. Um, and in between the ethics high-level discussions, technical requirements is kind of the law. Um, and I think the GDPR has bits and pieces that are interesting moving forward. So, for example, one of um, the bases to assure lawfulness of processing, we always talk about consent, but there's another one which is legitimate interest. So legitimate interests um, is one way to use your data lawfully. So if a company says, I'm using my legitimate interest, that's fine. But the GDPR also says you can do that unless there are consequences to the rights and freedoms of individuals. And so these balancing tests to say, I am going to use legitimate interest and I have thought about potential risks for the users start kind of these discussions about what is ethical and what is not and what is the right balance for everybody. Um, the problem I see today is that legitimate interest, when you read the article, it's Article 6, 1F or something like that, is very philosophical. And this is where consent basically comes in as, as an alternative because it's closer to a technical requirement. Consent is not that complicated when you think about it. Unless you bury it in 20 screens of... Yeah, so that's that's one of you know the the discussions I I have on a continuous basis is how bundled or unbundled can consent be? What are users' expectations? And the typical example I always take is I subscribe to a newsletter. Doesn't mean I imagine my data being used for retargeting. I want just a newsletter, and that's it. So it will be interesting to see how companies are going to address not only consent mechanisms but also definition of purpose. Why am I consenting to this data? What's the purpose of the data processing operation? And also see within the data ecosystem how we pass on purpose. Because the idea is one of the principles in the GDPR talks about purpose limitation. Um, so it's very nice if a company does some profiling on me and says, oh, she might be interested in I don't know, a new nail polish. Uh, but if I do not imagine being targeted or being you know, that they reach out to me related to certain products or services, um, I'm kind of beyond the purpose uh, definition. So I would like to see that within um, the data ecosystem. I kind of compare it to some form of accounting of data. We do it for money. So we have specific lists of if I transfer money from here to there, it falls under this type of number and this description. Accounting of the data is something we should start thinking about. 
Um, I think it would solve a lot of um, tension also that I see between the United States and Europe because we don't like this idea of data ownership. As we have this idea of fundamental rights and right to privacy and right to data protection, we have a problem with personal data being a data market that you can buy and sell. It's not part of, of our history and of the way we built up the GDPR. So if an intermediary would be some form of an accounting system without recognizing that we're talking basically about currency, my personal data is not currency, but it's a way for assuring that when data is being passed on, it's within an accountable way as is required by the GDPR. Yeah, actually, uh, I'm about to give a short keynote tomorrow on uh, one of the things I'm going to talk about are this next generation of data markets that are somewhat decentralized uh, using maybe some of the technologies around the blockchain, which are much more traceable, maybe, right? So, but it's interesting that uh, you brought that up. But I wasn't the type of data that I was, uh, the, the things that I was interested in was not necessarily personal data, but just data that uh, uh, people may want to expose to a, to a data market. Yeah. That, that uh, companies may have data lying around that have nothing to do with consumers, for example. Yeah. But speaking of which, so you talked about consent. One of the things that I've noticed in the last three to six months is there's also the notion of control around the model. So there's a speaker here on uh, tomorrow, Yuyang Shadow. He used to be an engineer at YouTube uh, helping build the recommender system. So he left, but uh, I had him on a podcast and he was describing YouTube's recommender mo- system, which optimized uh, only one metric, which is the time you spend on YouTube. So then uh, he started analyzing uh, the recommendations and he noticed that to get you to stay on YouTube, you, you have to they end up showing you more and more extreme content. You end up in this filter bubble. So he was saying that... Uh, uh, he thinks that consumers will want to have more control over that metric rather than optimizing time spent on sites, show me uh, videos to teach me something new or make me happy or things like that. So what do you think about uh, the kind of control over models as well? Um, I, I think that there's a lot of education to be done for data subjects to understand what, what data there is and what's possible with the data. Yeah. So I think that's one of the first steps when I look at my kids are starting to understand metrics and KPIs and, you know, what's the percentage of how well they did with the stars and things like that. Um, I also think that KPIs and metrics are very dangerous. And that's one of these examples. Indeed, if you want to optimize for time spent, basically you, you go to more extreme content on, on YouTube. If, if I think back to um, GDPR compliance, something I, I never hear talking about is how KPIs and bonuses are awarded within companies and how if we talk about accountability, it means that everybody within a company is accountable. But it's possible that you're a sales rep and you have incentives to maximize something that you will do a lot of things to get to your yearly bonus. And so I'm surprised that HR teams don't really revisit the ideas of KPIs and metrics. I think it should start there internally to make sure that at least companies are, are compliant and do the right thing, uh, whatever that might mean. We need to define that as well. I think consequences are not always 
easy to detect. So it's never going to be perfect. And once we get there, we start also integrating uh, citizens, data subjects, consumers into that definition of what is considered success. I saw the banner here, for example, uh, in the big hall, uh, which talks about uh, defining the problem. And last week, uh, I was I was uh, talking with, for example, Axiom and uh, the Accountability Foundation, and they gave some examples about how great data was. And it was interesting because these examples do not apply to the European market. So how you define the problem or what the, the problem is, is already defined by the context in which you live. And the general feeling sometimes is when you listen to these data stories is to say, okay, I was hearing about an, an app that would monitor the water within a house to bring down insurance claims. I live in Spain. Insurance claims are easy peasy. I do not care because, well, basically I call them, they come, they fix everything, they pay everything, I don't have to care. I would live in Belgium, that's another discussion. So the problems we're solving for are often contexts related to the society within we live. And I think that's where it's, it's interesting to start comparing and how we use technology to make sure we're solving for the same problems or we have different problems and what the underlying metrics and KPIs should be to define whether solving that problem is a success or not. But it starts with what's the problem exactly and do we actually have the same problems? I don't think so. If I think about self-driving cars, it would be nice in Europe, but public transport is not that bad. So I'm happy with public transport, certainly in Madrid, around Brussels, good. I, I don't need self-driving cars. Why should I care? So, But I care about other things. So defining those problems and these metrics is, is, I think, going to be interesting and important. The tools are there. So as long as we're not imposing problems or solutions of certain problems that do not exist, I think we can continue collaborating. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. I mean, I think that uh, uh, a lot of these will be kind of very specific to uh, certain locations and markets, right? So some of the some of the technologies that are being designed. But one of the things that caught my interest in uh, the GDPR is this notion of privacy by design, which I think that uh, if people take to heart, will change how we build some of our data services and data products moving forward. Yeah, I, I, I like the, there are interesting challenges. So it's, it's declined in seven principles. Um, and it's defined as data protection by design and, and by default as well. So the easy, kind of easy part is more the default settings. When you create systems, it's kind of the question I ask 20 times a week is, okay, good, great, I love your system. What do you collect by default and what do you pass on by defaults? And then you start turning things off uh, and then we'll see who takes on the responsibility to turn things on again. So that's the default. Privacy by design uh, was pushed by Anne Kabukian from Ottawa in, in Canada about more than 10 years ago. And these principles are finding themselves within the legislation, not only the GDPR, but also, for example, Hong Kong is starting to talk about this, Japan as well. And where there's one of these principles is about positive sum, not zero sum. So it's not I win and you lose, it's we work together and we both win. And that's, I think, a very good principle. There are interesting challenges within privacy by design to translate these seven principles into technical requirements. I think there are opportunities as well. It talks about traceability. 
something that obviously we talk about here as well, visibility, transparency, which then comes back again to we're sitting on so much data. How much data do we want to surface? And are data subjects or citizens ready to understand what we have to make decisions based on that? And this is where, again, I think the GDPR is like a first step to start showing a bit what we have while it goes together with education, because you don't want to creep out uh, consumers and, and, you know, have your customers leave because they think you do too much with the data. So trying to evolve with that, keeping in mind this idea of privacy by design, and hopefully this generation of more ethically minded engineers or data scientists will start thinking in that way as well. So like I mentioned, we're sitting here on a Tuesday and GDPR comes online on Friday. I hate to put you on the spot, but uh, look ahead one year. How do you think things have played out one year from now? I think a, a lot of companies will have cleaned up their data practices, will have documented more. Um, so this is also about data quality, um, which which basically brings about more opportunities, I think, to do things with the data. The big unknown is how data subjects and citizens are going to react, how they are going to enforce those new rights. Because the right to access existed under the directive, but nobody knew about it is the fact that we talk about Cambridge Analytica, the Equifax data leaks and things like that. Is that that going to push consumers, citizens to ask for their data? It's possible, but it's not certain. It will be different in different countries, I think. I do believe that there is opportunity in the GDPR. Um, data portability, for example, is very interesting, where the obligations by company is just to basically push out the data in a machine-readable format. From there, if you start thinking about it, about movements, for example, where consumer associations might kind of influence groups of people to request their data, but then create something new with that data, because the big question is always, okay, I push it out, but there's no format to transform that. That transformation is the opportunity. Um, so what are we going to do with that pile of data I might request as an individual? Would I want, for example, to share that with public authorities because they have questions about mobility within Brussels are opportunities that exist. And I think these opportunities will be also private and public collaborations. Um, now, let's see how the different actors move and how they understand these, these opportunities and which new actors also emerge uh, within that. I have interesting uh, uh, acquaintances who work on portability or access requests. So, for example, personaldata.io, for Olivier Deux, who is also partially behind Cambridge Analytica's revelations with The Guardian, who has been basically playing around with those rights and seeing how companies are reacting to that. But he has a clear vision about what the future might bring and what we could build on top of that. I think the European Union is also listening to that. We have, for example, financing projects like Horizon 2020, where there's a lot of money there to start building something new, something else based on lawfully acquired data, one way or another, to support society. And within, again, this private-public partnership concept spanning throughout Europe. So typically, if you want founding money from the European Union, you need companies in three different European countries to assure collaboration. So it will be interesting to see 
how this evolves in terms of GDPR compliance and continuous discussions also about what kind of legislation will we see next. So e-privacy, for example, is currently in draft mode, is being discussed between the Council, the Parliament and the Commission. Hopefully at the end of the year we have something and probably one year uh, before it gets enforced. This will be about digital, the devices, how our cookies are being put on there and read and things like that. So for now, there's like a discrepancy between GDPR and privacy. Hopefully that hole will be plugged. And other initiatives, I think the European institutions will come up with to support basically the digital single markets. Because it's about that. It's about making sure we reap the benefits of the data within Europe and our partners, obviously but also making sure that the, the fundamental rights upon which the European project is based are also uh, respected. Um, so it's this kind of balance between the two to build equitable societies moving forward. So this has been a great conversation. Your closing comments, they are really reinforced that GDPR is really just the first step. It is, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. You can follow O'Reilly Pauls on Twitter at O'Reilly Pauls. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.